Hello, uh, welcome to this lecture, Scrooge Economics, why you shouldn't buy presents for Christmas. Uh, first thing to say to everybody is mobile phones off, if you wouldn't mind, uh, then we can get through it. It's going to work quite simply, I'm going to do a brief introduction, then I'm going to hand over to Joel Waldfogel, who's going to go through his presentation, Q&A at the end, and you're doing a book signing afterwards, I believe. Yes. Simple as that. So, first of all, welcome everybody. Uh, I was asked to chair this about three weeks ago, having just written a piece in the Times on why we should be banning Christmas presents. So it's an absolute delight for me to be here, as I've been taking a lot of flack and being called Scrooge for a long time now, and it's nice to share it with somebody else. Um, now, I should tell you that this isn't your day job, is it? I shouldn't tell you. I should tell you that this isn't your day job. Uh, Joel is an industrial economist and professor at Wharton, and often looks at what's going on in the media industry. And he was telling me that 11 months of the year he has a furrowed brow doing serious subjects, and this is his little time for joy and relaxation to try and tell everybody why not to buy Christmas presents. <laughs> Let's get on with it. Over uh, to you. Thank you. Oh, with an introduction like that, what's the point of going on? Uh, <laughs> so, uh, it's really a delight to be here. Uh, and so, uh, I'd like to talk about Scroogeonomics now. So I'll be talking about why you shouldn't buy presents for the holidays or for Christmas, as you say here. You might ask, you know, why am I criticizing Christmas? You know, what did Santa Claus ever do to me? And I have to say, there was never any emotional injury or, or insult. There's no childhood trauma that's caused me to do this. Instead, what prompted me to get interested in this was really getting a PhD in economics. Studying economics can cause funny things to happen, as I guess you may already know or should know. Uh, you know, after I got my degree in economics, you know, it really, it, it sank in. Sometimes education works. And I began to look at all kinds of things that happen and wonder, hmm, how does this comport with or not with that model I was learning at school? So in the half hour that I have, I'd like to, uh, to try to convince you. I don't mean to provoke, but I'd like to try to convince you that the way we celebrate Christmas in uh, most of the world is with an orgy of value destruction in which we vaporize $25 billion worth of value. So nothing you know, bombastic, but that's sort of the, the agenda. All right, so what is the problem with holiday spending? Well, normally, I'll only spend $50 on something if I find something that's worth at least $50 to me. So normally, you know, spending provides some reasonable measure of satisfaction. I mean, in fact, since I only buy things worth at least their price, normally, whatever amount of spending occurred, there was at least that much satisfaction generated if you're willing to sum across people. Of course, gift giving is very different. When I set out to give you a gift, I'm at a huge disadvantage. I don't know what you like, I don't know what you already have, I don't know what you want. So I could set out, I could spend $50 on you, I could buy something that's worth nothing to you. I could. That's the theory, as it, anyways, that's the theory. Now, uh, I'm an empirical guy, all 12 months of the year. So, you know, about 16 years ago, I, uh, you know, having had this light bulb go on about, gee, holiday gift giving seems not to be at all like the way we talk about resource allocation in microeconomics classes. So I began doing surveys, asking people about the items they had received as gifts. So list the items you received as gifts. What do you think the giver paid? What is the item? What's the relationship between you and the giver? Uh, and I think, and, and what, did I say, what are you willing to pay for this thing? Not the sentimental value, but what are you willing to pay for this item? that you received as a gift. And eventually, after a few years, I began also asking about items that people had purchased for themselves, okay, not just the items they'd received as gifts. And what I've learned over the years through all these surveys, um, you know, a number of which have been published in, in actually serious economic journals, uh, is that per dollar spent, recipients value the items they receive as gifts 20% less than the items they purchase for themselves. Now, you might wonder, is this somehow, is this because people who receive gifts are grumpier than people who don't, you know, so is it about the persons as opposed to the process? No, if you control for person, it's still there. Is it about the items that people get as gifts? So perhaps givers are constrained to give us candles, whereas when we buy for ourselves, we buy Batman DVDs, and then that would give rise to this difference. But no, if you control for item, it's still there. You can even control for person and item. You know, you can control for anything you want. You will still find this pretty substantial differential, this missing satisfaction, because others choosing for us know less about what we want than we know about ourselves. At least that's how I interpret it. Now, we think about how does this happen or why does this happen, and I think I just suggested it. I mean, economic theory and I think common sense, certainly the predilection of economists has been to think, well, we know best what we want for ourselves. 
You know, we are well suited to make our own choices. In fact, this is the basis for many economists' skepticism about government. You know, if uh, when we allocate resources through government, one of the things that happens is that uh, we, through government, build bridges to nowhere. That's the famous project in Alaska that Sarah Palin said yes to, then no to. But in any event, uh, the skepticism people have about, about government is because others are choosing for us, as it were, giving gifts to us. Well, uh, since our givers know less than we do about what we want, it shouldn't be that surprising that they would do less well than we would do in choosing things that we like. So I think it's not that much of a shock. Now, do I control the slides here? Or, I don't know. Uh, yes, I do. Yes. There's the, there's the crying the child. Think about that crying child, and we'll come back to that crying child at some point. No children were harmed in the creation of the book. All right, so I said that on average there's 20% of this satisfaction missing or deadweight loss from gift giving. But actually, as it turns out, there are pretty big differences across givers in the amount of dissatisfaction with gifts. And, you know, interestingly enough, I have them ordered from uh, sort of least efficient to most efficient, if you'll uh, give me a slippery word of the uh, use of the word efficient. On the left, we have grandparents and aunts and uncles who are doing pretty poorly, and then siblings, parents, and then the best are the friends and the significant others. Now, this, this particular graph is from one of the surveys. Uh, didn't include one of my favorite categories, in-laws, who actually do worse than grandparents. <laughs> now, it's results like this over the years. Uh, you know, journalists would write about my research, and, and it would always kind of bring out a chuckle at grandma's expense. And in this year, I realized I felt sort of guilty about that because it's frankly, it's not grandma's fault. The reason grandma doesn't do very well is because she doesn't see you very often. And the reason she doesn't see you very often isn't because she's hiding from you. So, uh, no, seriously, um, but there are these big differences across people, and it'll be important in thinking about what we should do about this problem. Uh, all right. Now, before I go too much further, I think I need to sort of uh, defend against what I expect are, are the things that are going through your head. Of course, there's this thing called sentimental value, this thing called joy of giving. And so far, I might seem to have missed the whole point of gift giving. And so let's ask the question, can sentimental value, or in particular, can the joy of giving rescue bad giving as efficient? So here's a little hypothetical example. Suppose I buy you a $50 sweater. That's what it cost. It's only worth $30 to you. So far, this looks like a value-destroying transaction. But let's suppose I get another $30 worth of joy out of giving it to you. So now the total satisfaction produced here is 30 plus 30, or 60, which is bigger than 50. And if that's all correct, and it sounds reasonable to me, then Professor Waldfogel is a moron. Well, what's missing in that analysis? So I would argue, although I agree that joy of giving is important and may well exist, uh, <laughs> suppose I also get joy from giving you something you actually liked. Well, then I'd get my $30 worth of joy, and you'd get something worth at least $50 to you. 30 plus 50 is 80. 80 is bigger than 60. Well, that means the bad gift missed out on $20, at least $20 worth of satisfaction. So I'm afraid that joy of giving, while it may well be important and it'll be relevant to the prescriptions we, we could have about this, it doesn't rescue bad giving as efficient. Now, it is possible that the giver only enjoys giving something that the recipient doesn't want. We call that sadism. Now, now more seriously, though, we also could think about that as paternalism. I mean, so what does a six-year-old boy want? You know, he wants 10 pounds of candy. I want him to have a hat. I wouldn't be as happy giving him 10 pounds of candy as I would giving him a hat. So I wouldn't get the same joy out of sort of facilitating his self-destruction. I think paternalism is an interesting motive for some kind of transfers. I don't think it describes the vast lot of gift giving. I mean, in fact, there's direct evidence that it doesn't. Precisely the kind of gift givers who are likely to give gifts that miss the mark, those are the givers who are most likely to give gifts of durable value, that is cash and gift certificates, which is precisely what they would do if they were trying to avoid destroying value. So although I understand that there are instances in which paternalism is the motivation, maybe sadism too, but I, I don't think that describes the vast lot of giving. So I don't think that gift-specific joy of giving is going to rescue bad giving as good. Now, the next criticism I anticipate, uh, I've gotten a little defensive over the years, is, well, isn't this good for the economy? Isn't this holiday spending good for the economy? So, you know, and after all, you're a Wharton professor. How dare you threaten the retail industry? Well, what does good for the economy actually mean? You know, think about, uh, think about that micro class. And we showed you how in 
demand curve, supply curve, we maximize the sum of consumer surplus and producer surplus when we have an unfettered competitive market. So, you know, a well-functioning market maximizes those things. What does the seller get? The seller gets a price that's in excess of his costs and therefore some surplus, producer surplus or profit, depending on how you want to think about it. What does the buyer get? The buyer gets a product that she values above the price and therefore some consumer surplus. And again, these are maximized in normal transactions. Give-giving, again, is a little bit different. With give-giving, the seller still gets a price in excess of his costs, and so he still gets his profit. But now the ultimate consumer, in this case the gift recipient, gets something that she doesn't necessarily value above the price, but more specifically doesn't necessarily value as highly as she would value uh, an equivalent expenditure that, where the choice had been made by herself. So is it good for the economy? Well, again, it's good for one of the parties. It's not good for the other party. So, you know. Was it good for you, dear, I guess is the question. <laughs> now, it's getting a bit dreary, so it's worth, you know, get, before we get more dreary, uh, let's contemplate uh, better kinds of gifts or even ideal gifts. Right? So at one level, the ideal, I think the textbook ideal gift is simply cash. That is, you know, I let you buy whatever it is that you want to buy. But I think, you know, introspection as humans suggests that's actually not quite right. Uh, an ideal gift is actually better. I would describe a transcendent gift as something that delights the recipient, something they would not have purchased for themselves. It delivers more satisfaction to them than the thing they would have purchased. In other words, it's something they didn't know about or somehow couldn't have purchased or wouldn't have purchased uh, if they'd had the equivalent amount of cash. How is this even possible? Well, it's sort of not possible in the Economics 101 textbook, but I think in real life it's very, very possible. What are a couple of ways in which it's possible? Well, one is I would call search. So there are lots of products out there, and the neoclassical uh, consumer is assumed to know about all of them, but of course we don't know about all the products. Sometimes our friends know a lot about particular categories of products, music or books. They know a lot about our preferences. They might give us something that really opens our eyes in some wonderful way. We've all had that experience. So I think search can, uh, can give rise to gift, you know, gifts that are better than what we would have purchased for ourselves. There's also something I would call permission, especially inside the family. So if I want to buy some extravagant thing, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a good family man. I'm not going to just go spend the money. Uh, uh, so left to my own devices, I'll just live without that digital camera. But if at some point my wife realizes that I want that thing and says, okay, you have permission, you can go buy that. That allows me to do something I wouldn't have done on my own with cash. So there are, you know, transcendent giving is possible. And I, I know, you, you know, you, you probably all think that you can give well, and I'm sure you can for some recipients. My point is not that it's not possible. I think it is possible. It's just, on average, unlikely. It's just kind of hard. Okay. So how big is this, is this issue? How much holiday spending? I'll start with the U.S., but then we'll move, uh, move elsewhere. Now, in the U.S., the National Retail Federation says that Americans spend $450 billion each year on holiday gifts. <laughs> That's essentially all retail sales during November and December. Uh, you know, I think a, a lot of that stuff is the sort of toilet paper and groceries that you always buy, so I think that's kind of a high, a high estimate. I think a more conservative approach to this question is just to look at the retail sales data, watch how they jump around, and look at the difference between December, which turns out to be a big spike, and the months around it. So let me show you. Here's 2007 in the U.S. This is monthly, non-seasonally adjusted retail sales. By the way, the book doesn't have any of these pictures, so this is the bonus, uh, the bonus presentation you get. Anyways. What you see is December is a big spike, 430 billion. It's a lot bigger than November, a lot bigger than January. And it's not just 2007. Here's 2006. Here's 2005. I'll show you more years later. But you see, it happens a lot. Yeah, this big spike. And so what I think of as a conservative or reasonable way to measure the magnitude of holiday spending is the difference between December and the average of November and January. <laughs> and by that measure, it's about $65 billion per year in the U.S., now take that 20% we had earlier, multiply it by this 65 billion, what do you have? You have 13 billion in missing satisfaction or deadweight loss. Now, waste has enemies, particularly when the waste is done by government. So in the US, we have this watchdog group called the Citizens Against Government Waste. They monitor the US federal budget every year and they look for projects with benefits that fall short of their costs. They uh, came up with, in 2007, $17 billion worth of projects whose benefit was less than their costs. Now, of course, by that <coughs> method for deeming things waste, all of holiday spending is waste. So $65 billion is waste. By my more conservative method, it's only $13 billion in the U.S. Now, I don't want to sort of start a fight about wh where, the, where the waste is bigger, but clearly, if you're an enemy of waste and you're upset at 
Uncle Sam, the American personification of government, you ought to be upset at Santa Claus as well. So, you know, can I have some outrage here is, uh, I guess, the question I want to put out there. Now, let's move outside the U.S. You know, are Americans alone? I, you know, I, I have the usual American defensiveness and, and self-image problems. I, I thought, you know, we lead the world in some pretty awful things. <coughs> some good things, too, by the way. But, you know, obesity gasoline consumption, uh, other things. So I thought surely we would lead the, the, the world in sort of vulgar excess at Christmas. Well, vulgar, there's a value judgment, but whatever. Um, so what does it look like around the world? Well, here is a comparison of the US in the lower right with Western European countries. And lo and behold, in 2007, lo and behold, there's a December spending spike everywhere. Look at that, it, all these countries has a December spending spike. What about Eastern Europe? Well, I don't have all of them, but all of them that are at the OECD website are up here. <coughs> there it is for Eastern Europe, you know, Czech Republic, Poland, uh, Hungary, even Russia, after a century of godless communism. Look at that. Okay? Russia's century of, or, or transition post-century of godless communism is fascinating. You can so summarize these statistics just by taking this ratio of December to the months around it. And you can just calculate that for every year you can do it. And so what I want to do in the next picture is compare Russian and American uh, December spending bumps since about 1990. Of course, there's Russia rendered in red. Look at that. It overtook the United States in about 2005. So you know, one of my favorite movies is Dr. Strangelove. Remember, General Buck Turgidson, played by George C. Scott, was obsessively concerned about you know, all kinds of gaps between the Americans and the Russians, like a cave gap, and, you know, not enough caves for Americans or Russians to hide in after the nuclear war. But here there is a Santa Claus gap, some cause for concern, perhaps. All right. What about other countries? Well, here are a few other countries. Uh, Brazil, Mexico, South Africa, U.S., again, big bumps. Finally, a set of countries that maybe is a little bit different. What do these countries have in common? Well, uh, not much direct interest in, Christ, uh, in Christianity or, or Christmas. So Israel has virtually no Christians. Uh, same with China, Japan, and South Korea. And for the most part, these countries do not have December spending bumps. Japan does, though. Japan does celebrate uh, Christmas uh, as a secular kind of holiday. There's also some spending around New Year's. So there is a big spending spike in Japan. Now, the point, though, is not that Israelis don't have uh, spending spikes. They do. Their gift-giving holidays fall in spring and fall, Passover and New Year's. So they do, if you look at mul multiple years of data, you do see spending spikes around April and October. But again, those are the lunar calendar dictates that those holidays move across months. All right, so where are we? Uh, so far, I've said we're not alone, but where do we stack up? Where do we Americans stack up? Where does the UK stack up? So since 2000, here's a bar chart that just shows uh, all these countries in order. From up at the top, we have Hungary, <coughs> Italy, Portugal, Brazil. There's the UK with a green circle around it. Ah, there's the US. To my surprise, the US is way down this list, way down. Now, of course, the December spending spike could be small because we're spending a lot the rest of the year. There are you know, other ways of measuring this. But the December spending spike is, is pretty small in the US. How about in the 90s? Well, similar pattern. How about in the 80s? Similar pattern. How about in the 70s? Similar pattern. The US is pretty far down the list. I, do I have the 60s? Yes, I do have the 60s. Again, the US is pretty far down this list. So I was really very, uh, very surprised by this. There are also some per capita spending calculations. They're a little harder to do because it's hard to get levels of retail sales around the world, but I've done some of those. And even in those, the U.S., you know, I have those for about 20 countries. The U.S. is about 12th. So the U.S. is pretty far down that list. So there's good news for defensive Americans. We're not ahead in this measure that you might find vulgar. But the bad news is substantially worse than the good news. The bad news is this little thing I identify as a $13 billion problem in the U.S. is a $25 billion problem around the world. So uh, that, that's a sort of a, a source of concern. I should mention that although most of my surveys about how much you like your gifts have been done in the U.S., last year I did a round of surveys in other countries, and I did get uh, very similar results. In fact, here's just a quick glimpse at one of those. And this is, this is different because of its in-laws. <laughs> okay. Bad news. Now, I guess the next question one might think about, whoops, that I might think about is, did our generation invent the commercialization of Christmas? And I think, you know, every generation thinks it invented sex, and I think every generation thinks it invented the vulgar commercialization of Christmas. Uh, I certainly thought so before collecting some data. Turns out I can get the, uh, you could too, get the retail sales data back to 1935 in the U.S. and some fragmentary data from, uh, from prior to that. So let's just look back in time here. Some nice stata graphs. 
Here it is back to 1990. Every year, there's that December spike and the little trough in January and February, by the way. There it is back to 1980, from 80 to 90. Same kind of pattern. <coughs> there it is back to 67. You know, I could bore you with more, but let me summarize this. So I can summarize this in the following way. Here's a picture that has just two lines in it. One is December excess over November. The other is December excess over January. And what you see, this goes back to 1935, and it's essentially, uh, I mean, there are fluctuations, of course, but there's no clear trend until quite recently, the December over January has been declining, but I'll come back to that. That's something else, another interesting phenomenon uh, that maybe is good news. Even prior to 1935 in the U.S., so it's interesting the way the statistics, statistics were reported. Um, in, in prior to 1935, they were reported for categories of stores, dime stores, uh, catalog stores, candy stores, cigar shops. Just one, one sort of interesting picture. This is 10 cent stores like Woolworths. That was the big one. And look at that spike. That is, you know, the index is at 100 versus about, you know, in other months on average about, uh, you know, 50 or 60. That's an enormous spike, right? Remember Hungary was at 50%. So this is... 100 minus 60 over 60, that's 70, 80%. That's a really big spike, okay? And, and in fact, you can look at similar kinds of pictures throughout the 20s, and it's pretty constant. So the, the point is, it's been going on for a while. <coughs> now, since 1935, the U.S. economy has grown by about a factor of five. How about holiday spending? Well, it has gone up, but it's only gone up by about a factor of three. You know, so you, if you think about holiday spending as a ratio to the, to the sort of GDP, yeah, it, it, there are fluctuations, but it's really been trending down. You could think about the 20th century as some sort of big experiment, which what happens when people get a lot richer? Well, they get a lot richer and they spend more on Christmas, but proportionally, they spend less. What does that suggest about what kind of good holiday gift giving is? Well, it suggests that it's a necessity, not a luxury. And I can go into a little more depth about that in a moment. So, in fact, we can ask this specific question. Is Christmas like spam? Is it like chicken? Or is it like caviar? You know, these are like the, the paradigmatic uh, or stereotypical examples of inferior goods, normal goods, and uh, luxury goods. And, of course, the definitions of these things have to do with what happens to the share of expenditure devoted to that good as income rises. With inferior goods, the amount and share go, I mean, the, the amount goes down. With necessities, the amount goes up, but the share doesn't go up. With luxuries, the amount and the share both go up. So <coughs> what is holiday spending? So I already, we already had a suggestion that it's, uh, that, it's, that it's like a necessity, but we can do it in a little more detailed way. If you look at the national income and product accounts for the U.S., there are uh, data for you know, categories of expenditure. So here it is for a bunch of different categories. On the left, we have medical care. No, by the way, the, the picture shows the income elasticity, right? So if it's above one, it's a, a, it's a luxury. If it's below one and above zero, as, there, as many of them are, it's a necessity. So on the left, we have medical care, which in the U.S. is sort of a luxury. Uh, and then we go to motor vehicles, recreation, durables, and so forth. At the right end of this graph, we have food and clothing and shoes and gasoline. Nestled in there between gasoline and food, is holiday gift giving. So it looks a lot like a necessity with all the glamour of gasoline. I mean, another way to think about that, you know, as people get richer, it doesn't seem that they're sort of bristling to spend more on holiday gifts. Instead, it sounds more, more like an obligation. Okay. And actually, there are other, uh, you know, cross-sectional household data that suggest the same thing. If you look across households, the amount of spending by richer households is higher, but not nearly proportional to, to income in contemporary uh, uh, cross-sectional data. All right, how about the way we finance Christmas? Well, in the olden days, uh, people used to save. They'd save through the year. Uh, in fact, there were these things called Christmas clubs. Christmas clubs are interesting uh, because they're, they're, they pay very low interest. They were targeted at people who weren't very sophisticated about finance, maybe didn't really have bank accounts. And I think a common view about these things until recently was that these were kind of pernicious things because after all they offered such low interest and so only an idiot would really participate in one of these things as opposed to either putting the money in the mattress well that's zero interest or just a regular old savings account that paid higher interest I mean now we've become more sophisticated about idiocy you know in what's called behavioral economics and I think we know that people do have trouble disciplining themselves 
And so one might view uh, Christmas clubs, you know, which are designed, again, to bring you into the bank every week to make a small deposit. It pays low interest, but again, it helps you save. Well, so during the 30s, what these looked like in the U.S. or what the total deposits in these kinds of accounts looked like is really interesting. This clear sawtooth pattern. I don't know if it's hard or easy to see this. These are quarterly observations, and what happens is it rises throughout the year, and then in the last quarter it plummets as people take their money out to pay for Christmas. The Christmas club deposits themselves accounted for 10 or 15% of holiday gift giving in the 30s. So it was substantial. And of course, there may have been other savings used for Christmas as well. So that's the old way that people used to save for Christmas. In the last 40 years or so, of course, in the US and probably elsewhere, we've had uh, a, a newfangled way to, uh, to pay for Christmas. Of course, now we pay for it with borrowing. So in the last 30, 40 years, we've had just enormous growth in revolving credit. This, so this is credit card debt. It's up to a trillion dollars with a T. That's a big number, a trillion dollars. Now, of course, the way the Federal Reserve calculates this, it's, it's anything that's a balance. So it, it, you know, if you paid it off this month, in some sense, you just use it as a charge card, but still it would be called debt in this figure. So this a bit overstates kind of indebtedness, but still this is what's on the card, the cumulative amount that's on the card. It's been going way up. And there are these little blips that you might guess have a little bit to do with our friend December, and, and, uh, and, and sure enough, they do. Let's focus in on one recent year. So here's one recent year. The red line occurs at December. So what's going on? Of course, there is this secular trend. There's this increase in the amount of uh, indebtedness in this sense. In December, of course, it jumps way up, and that's precisely when spending jumps way up. Remember, spending then jumped way down in January and February. Now, if people paid off their whole credit card, in the month in which they incurred the purchase, then debt would come right back to its level. But it doesn't. It hovers above trend in January and February. Pretty substantial amounts. I mean, roughly speaking, one could calculate you know, the share of holiday spending that's being put on plastic and then the share that's still on it you know, months afterwards. And so I'll show you some pictures that describe that. So first of all, just the Christmas plastic share. Uh, this is just literally the, uh, the, the, the excess of that debt relative to the trend line in December relative to the holiday gift spending, the way I measure it. And so it used to hover around 40%. After 1980, it jumped up to about 50 or 60%. This is just how much is being put on plastic. Nothing too you know, pernicious about this. In January, though, this is amount that's still not paid off. And so it was hovering around 10, 15% till 1980. And since then, it's shot up to 40, 50%. Now, again, this is not just relative to what's borrowed, but relative to the total Christmas spending. So this is kind of, a, kind of a big share that's not paid off a month afterwards. What about February? Well, similar story. It was hovering around zero. By the way, these are kind of best fit lines with you know, using some kind of non-parametric stuff uh, through the dots that are the years. Anyways, it was sort of constant around zero. And then in the last 15, 20 years, it's jumped up to about 15%. But again, that's 15% of total Christmas spending, not Christmas borrowing, so it's actually more of the stuff that got borrowed. It's, it's a higher fraction. So showing you these is a, li a little bit irresponsible because, after all, we don't know that credit's bad. Credit's good, right? Choice is good. Uh, having uh, credit means I could buy something my, that my uh, present self knows my future self can afford, and you know, so it expands the set of opportunities and so forth. We all know these arguments, and I, I tend to believe them. I mean, having said that, I also have the view that anything that you'd be embarrassed to tell your mother is probably not entirely good. And so, uh, you know, it, it's a little strange that uh, a fully anticipated event, Christmas, right, same day every year, that it somehow requires borrowing at 18%, and it's in some cases worse, but there you have it. All right. Um, so what about gift cards? You know, we've seen some hints about gift cards uh, uh, prior to this. Now, in principle, and again, I'm going to emphasize in principle, but not really in fact, in principle, a great gift would be cash because it would let you at least do what you want to do. It wouldn't be transcendent. You wouldn't do better than you were going to do if I gave you cash, but you'd at least do you know, as well as you normally do. And, uh, but but you know, the thing that's like cash that we actually observe people giving is gift cards. In the last 15 years, they've grown from almost nothing to about 80 billion a year in the US, not just at Christmas, because 80 billion is, you know, is bigger than just Christmas spending. But around Christmas, it's maybe a third of, of, the, of the giving is in the form of gift cards. <laughs> Robert Solo you know, once made this joke about computers. You know, they're everywhere, but in the productivity statistics. And so one of the things I wondered was, well, uh, gift cards are everywhere. Are they in the retail sales statistics? So how would they show up if they were going to be there? I mean, so I get a gift card. 
so the way gift cards work, by the way, is uh, I give $100 to the retailer, but it doesn't show up either as revenue for the retailer or as retail sales at the time of that. Instead, it gets escrowed. When the, uh, when the card's redeemed, or when I, when I you know, actually do the spending and the card gets redeemed, then it shows up as revenue for the retailer and as retail sales. So we don't really know when these redemptions occur, but there's lots of reason to think a bunch of it happens in January as opposed to December. So if gift cards were making a dent in uh, behavior, we ought to see December falling relative to January over time. We already saw a hint about that, but let's look explicitly at that. So this is simply a picture of the drop-off from December to January in the gift card era. So the gift card era starts about 19, you know, late 90s or something. And you do see that this has reached unprecedented levels, precisely in the period when gift cards have grown to be a big deal. You can see it even more clearly if you look specifically at uh, general merchandise stores or department stores, you know, like Macy's or Harrods, I guess. So there it is for uh, general merchandise stores you see this thing has really reached unprecedented levels in the last 10 years. By the way, the, the reason there are two separate pictures here, you know, the, is that uh, when the U.S. government changed from SIC codes to uh, NAICS codes, there was a change in the series, and so one series is by the old, one is by the new. There's a period of overlap, and you can see the trends are similar, so that's a boring footnote, but this is LSE, so you can handle that. Um, okay, so I think we do see, we do see... Uh, <laughs> Some evidence of the gift cards in the statistics, a, a, a transferring or a movement of the spending from not only from December to January, but the decision making is moving from a giver to the recipient. So maybe this is, maybe this is good news. Now, now it's time for a little more uh, defensiveness on my part. I want to anticipate two very natural criticisms that frankly I would be making, I would be making of the guy up here if I were sitting down there. Right? So a natural economist criticism of all this stuff is to say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. This, this is all voluntary behavior, this gift giving. It's all voluntary. And by the way, it's also been going on for a very long time. How could it possibly not be good, efficient, optimal, hunky-dory, whatever word you like? Okay? So let's talk about those two things separately, both voluntary and, and, and persistent. Is it really voluntary? Is the gift giving we see at Christmas really voluntary. Now, of course, you know, there's no law that says you have to give gifts, but if you show up at the holiday event with no present for mom, don't you get in trouble in some sense? Isn't there some obligation to do this? I mean, is it really within your, your uh, scope of reasonable things you might do without getting in trouble with your family to not give mom a gift or to not give somebody a gift? And I guess I would argue that um, to the extent that it's not, and I think for many of us it's not, well, we can't infer optimality from choice if behavior is not optimal. Revealed preference is only about voluntary behavior. If we're doing things that, and we have no alternative but to do them, revealed constraint <laughs> reveals nothing about optimality. So to the extent that these are not voluntary choices, and I think to a large extent they're not, at least for many of us, it's hard to infer optimality from choice. You know, secondly, how about the persistent aspect here? How could this persist if it's so inefficient? Well, I think you know, when bad things happen to good people, economists like to look at misaligned incentives as the cause. That might explain the financial crisis. Maybe it also explains some of this. So who are the big offenders here? Well, it's grandma again, who's giving this really bad gift. What would be better aligned incentives or what would be a feedback mechanism that sort of gave grandma a sense of what she did wrong? Well, if she got this, sorry, if her grandson got this terrible gift and said, you know, grandma, I, I really hate this thing, please don't ever give me something like this again, and here's, here's something that would be better. Now, I don't think that would be good if, uh, you know, if Junior did that, but the fact that Junior has an obligation not to do that, you know, we all do, right? We have to kind of pretend, well, thank you, and I love that. Um, I think it's, there isn't really much direct feedback. It's hard for this thing to self-correct very quickly. I think of my work as an attempt to help equilibrate the whole system. So anyways, I, I don't think it's entirely voluntary. I don't think the feedbacks are really there to allow it to quickly correct. And so I don't think that just because it's been going on for a long time that it's necessarily good. All right, with a few minutes left, it's time for the guilt-inducing part of the show. Uh, amid what I would characterize as waste, but certainly amid a lot of expenditure and, and uh, you know, consumption, um, there are a lot of good causes that go begging. So, you know, one point to emphasize is that the world income distribution is really very unequal. Uh, the bottom, so here's, here's a Lorenz curve done by countries, not by individuals, but the bottom 80% of the world population has only 20% of world GDP. Now, 
a reasonable response to that is, well, so what? But, I mean, another view, however, is, well, if you think there's declining marginal utility of stuff, you might think that some, re, you know, some redistribution might make people better off. Of course, that is a controversial thing to say, right? Because it's very hard to compare your happiness with mine. Uh, so, you know, before we invoke Karl Marx or, or anybody, uh, you know, we might note that a lot of sharing occurs voluntarily, right? So there's a lot of voluntary uh, sharing. And in fact, in fact, uh, charitable giving turns out to be a luxury. What do I mean by that? I already said that holiday gift giving looks like a necessity. But if you look at the household data, so now I'm talking about the consumer expenditure survey in the US, one of the categories of expenditure is charitable giving, or cash giving. And <clears throat> that really behaves like a luxury. So here is a set of income elasticities from the consumer expenditure survey. And over here on the left, we have pensions, and then we have cash contributions, which is charity. And then as we go all the way over to the right, we get to food and housing. And actually, in the cross-section data, it's a well-known paradox, healthcare shows up as a necessity as opposed to a luxury. But that's off today's point. The point I do want to emphasize, though, is cash contributions look clearly like a luxury. They have an income elasticity well above one. It's the second highest of the income elasticities here. Well, what does that, what does that all mean? Well, there's a hint, I guess, in, in how, what we might do about this problem in this interesting observation that charitable giving looks like a luxury. So why don't I go to my, uh, my set of solutions. Oops, my solutions. So first of all, I have to say what my solutions are not because I, I often get myself in trouble by being misunderstood. First of all, the solution is not to just stop giving. It's quite possible that there's a joy of giving and if people simply didn't give, they wouldn't get that joy. Even though they wouldn't destroy value on the other end, they wouldn't get the joy on the first end. So I don't think that's a solution until you can establish with certainty that there's no joy of giving. Most people think there is. Secondly, I think the solution is not to give cash. That's the textbook solution, but there's lots of evidence that people find cash to be an awkward gift, at least in, in, in most Western cultures. Uh, psychologists have actually studied this. It, uh, it's really a stigmatized, awkward gift. There are some exceptions. Grandma can give it to the grandchildren, but uh, in general, it's not a, an allowable gift. It is in China. It is among Asian Americans in, in the surveys I've done, but in general, it, it's not. So I don't think it's the solution. What is the solution? Or what are the solutions? I would say, first, you know, remember there was this range of kind of effectivenesses of gift givers. If you're the kind of gift giver, if you are in frequent contact with your recipient, you know something about what they like, I would say go ahead and keep giving gifts. You're not going to destroy much value. You might even give those transcendent gifts. So I, I, go ahead and keep doing what you're doing, especially for children. Don't want anybody crying like the kid on the cover of the book. A second kind of gift, so what can we do to allow the giver to make choices? Well, again, you know, we can't give cash, but what's like cash is gift cards. So gift cards or gift vouchers, now I know they're not very inspiring sounding, and you know, certainly for your close friends, it sort of seems like a cop-out uh, uh, you know, to choose that. But in those situations where you have to give something, but you have no idea what to give, if, you go, if your goal is to not destroy value, they have some appeal. I do have one substantial misgiving about them, which is that even the cards that have no expiration dates and no fees, they still have kind of a, an effective fee because recipients are careless. They forget about them. They lose them. Apparently, 10% of their value never gets redeemed. Well, that's not value destruction, but it does make them somewhat ineffective as a way to transfer buying power from giver to recipient. So I, I, my soapbox idea here is it would be nice if retailers would issue gift cards that defaulted to charity after 24 months. So any unspent balance went straight to a good cause. I realize this is profit out of the pocket of, uh, of the retailers, but there are a lot of socially conscious retailers who might even gain some advantage from doing this. So, uh, you know, Gap, are you listening? Um, who knows? Another possibility is charity gift cards. So this will be my, my last big suggestion. There are these Charity gift cards, you know, you can give your friend this gift card which allows him to choose which of a long list of charities gets the money. Now, of course, this is a soft-hearted idea, but there's also a hard-headed nugget behind it. You know, we just saw that charitable giving was a luxury. One of the things we try to accomplish with our gift giving is to allow our recipients to experience a luxury they can't normally afford. Usually, we interpret that as chocolate or jewelry or something like that. But, you know, how about charity instead? And so if we were to give our, our, uh, our friend 
uh, a charity gift card, then he or she gets to act like a rich guy, gives some money to charity. No value gets destroyed if the charity is chosen well. Uh, and we both get to feel like good people for having done something useful for the world. So uh, that, that's, uh, that's a suggestion. It's not probably a good idea for 11-year-old boys, those guys who want candy or guns or whatever they want. But, you know, it could be a good solution <laughs> for you and your grown-up friends. So that, that's, a, that, that's an idea. And so I guess what I hope, of course I want you to have happy holidays and Merry Christmas, but I want you to have happy and efficient holidays. That's my, that's my wish. Now, I, I guess I, I, I have to, uh, to tell you that my book makes a great gift. But then, uh, but I also need, you know, honesty compels me to say you probably shouldn't buy it for someone unless you have some idea that they might enjoy it. But I can say you should buy it for yourself. And if you don't like it, you should give it as a gift. Thank you. Thank you. I have to say, I'm still questioning whether Dickens would have booed you or cheered you for that. I can't quite work it out. Well, I should also point out that perhaps redistribution of income isn't quite as radical concept at the LSE as it would be at Wharton. I think, I think here it's not necessarily so shocking. Now, what we're going to do now is we're going to move to questions, and that's, those are questions, please, not lectures from the floor. I'm going to ask a question myself and give you a little bit of time to think about it while we do that. What was fascinating for me listening to that is, in my piece, I had a six-point manifesto of why people shouldn't give gifts. You only covered one of them, so there are a lot more arguments too. My perspective is a personal finance one, not an economics one, which I think is where it comes down to it. And I should also point out my big problem with gift cards is in a period of recession, frankly, when the company goes bust, which we've had here on many occasions, those gift cards are not worth the card they are printed on. And I would never give them and, in fact, warn people away from doing so for just that. hope no one has a Borders gift card at the moment, <laughs> I should point out. Um, so my quick question for you is, anthropologically, what we gift-giving is about ceremonial gift exchange. It was originally done uh, to weddings or coming-of-age ceremonies to effectively a form of social banking that older, richer people would give money to start of people younger off so they could have more money go as they grew older. And, of course, Christmas doesn't follow that pattern. That's one of the problems with it. It's a zero-sum game. Is value lost just as much in wedding gifts economically? Well, in the U.S. at least. Oh, so yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You know, wedding registries are quite common, and, and so where I think it's considered tacky to explicitly ask exactly what you want for Christmas, it's customary. It's absolutely customary to say exactly what you want for weddings. So effectively, all gifts are turned into cash at weddings. I mean, it is an example of you know when big dollars are on the line, we develop more efficient institutions, you know, in contrast to what I claim about Christmas. Mm. So I think uh, wedding gifts turn out to not destroy much value because of this. I presume you're not suggesting you'll spend a lot more at Christmas then to make it more efficient. Sorry, I don't understand. <laughs> well, if you say big dollars are on the line, if we all gave more at Christmas, oh. we might make ourselves giving more efficient. That's reverse causality, I think. Let's go for questions, if we have any. What I'm going to do is I'm going to take three at a time, if you don't mind. So if you ask your question, and then we'll put them to the professor after that. Do we have any hands? Oh, come on, be brave. Yes, we have one there, and we have one there. Any on the balcony? We'll go for these two first. Three in a row. There we go. So uh, I've got one question about the... If you could just tell us who you are, whether you're a student or what you do here as well, that'd be lovely. Okay, uh, my name is Rafael. I'm an exchange research student from Bonn. Um, I've got a question about the surveys uh, that, that you did in, in the beginning, and particular um, when they included children, and I think they, they have, how do we make sure that the willingness to pay that, that these children have can be measured in a, in, a, in a good way, because many children don't have any money, so, so uh, it's, it's hard to, to tell they want to spend $100 on this. Thank you. And the question over there? Hi, I'm Samantha Godding. Um, I was wondering, would it not be more efficient if uh, it, the Christmas gift-giving went the way of wedding gift-giving, where someone gives a list of what they wanted, and then that list could be filled by all the people that want to uh, give gifts? And the third gentleman here in the purple sweater. I haven't had much time to think of this, but um, what is the big... Uh, deal with efficiency, and why is it such? Why is it the biggest bu buzzword in this talk? And can you just say say why? Yeah. Okay. So if you've got those, first of all, how do we value children's spending habits? Would it more be more efficient if we all told everybody what we wanted and they bought it for us? Um, and what's the big deal with efficiency, Prof? Yeah. So. Uh, 
two points. So there literally are no young children in the surveys. But whether there are, whether there are, you know, I use the same method of valuing for both gifts and, and items purchased for oneself. So it almost, it almost doesn't matter in principle what method I use for evaluation as long as I use the same method for valuation for both the own items, the per items purchased for oneself, and the items received as gifts. Uh, so, uh, but, but there are no young children. There are no young children. Nobody younger than about 17 in the surveys I've done. Now on the, would lists be more efficient? I mean, at some level, yes, but I think there is an issue of possible vulgarity with lists. Um, I think, you know, I talk to people, and many people say, well, in our family, we do essentially do that, or we explicitly tell each other what we want. So I think many people do this, but I, I feel uncomfortable saying people ought to do this, because some people find that uncomfortable. So I mean, I'm, I'm very comfortable with it. It sounds efficient, but I'm not sure I'm ready to say it. Everybody ought to do it. Now, on the question of whether efficiency is even a worthwhile goal, it's a fascinating question. Different, some words sort of strike different sorts of people differently. I'm guessing you're not an economics student, or I, maybe you are. I don't mean to criticize you. I mean, if I had What said, do you study? Come on, tell us. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and here? Okay. No. So, I mean, so, so, I mean, some words animate different people differently. Had I talked about waste, I think we can all agree waste is bad. But efficiency sounds like, oh, capitalist taskmasters, you know, enslaving workers on machines. And, and I think... You know, we're just talking about not wasting stuff. And so efficiency is an off-putting word for non-economists. Uh, but just think about it as like not wasting stuff. And then I think many of us could be on board with not wasting stuff. More questions. Got one at the back. I should say my biggest problem with Christmas gift giving is the misprioritization of personal finances. There's, there is an obligation, I agree with you, an obligation on gift giving. And if, if I were to give you a gift, for £20 and I could afford it, I were to buy you a pair of socks for £20, you were obliged to give me a gift back of some cufflinks also for £20, but you couldn't afford it. What's actually happened is we've both spent £20, but I forced you to spend £20 on the pair of socks I gave you because it's a zero-sum game when you might have wanted to spend that on feeding your children instead. And therefore, actually, one of the best Christmas presents we could give is releasing other people from the obligation of buying us a gift. Yes, question at the back. Um, my name is uh, Joost, I'm a journalist uh, from the Netherlands here. Um, uh, what the, you, you have the, the, the absolute numbers, but you know, what is the effect on, uh, on national income? How much would uh, the growth of an economy be higher if uh, all this waste wouldn't be produced? Okay, and there was a question just in front, I believe. Oh, hands are popping up all over the place now. Right, I saw one there, one there, and two here. So we'll do the three at the back and then we'll do the two there. Okay. Uh, hi, I'm Luca, postgraduate management student here. Um, I was wondering, have you ever thought about presents that rather than buying, we actually make ourselves, so where time goes into it as an investment? And the fact that perhaps these can actually be value creating, perhaps if a child, for example, makes a photo album for their parents. Have you ever considered that effect in, in, in the calculation? I've never heard such a cute idea turned into such a very strict, efficient work question before. Yes. Uh, hi, I'm Jordan. Um, and I was wondering, uh, is there any additional waste by the, um, because prices tend to drop directly after Christmas, um, so people who can sort of hold, uh, afford to buy things after Christmas if they don't celebrate Christmas can sort of use that to their advantage? I'm, I'm delighted with those questions. They follow my sort of some of the general principles oh, that yeah, I, and I talk about. Oh, go carry on, my love. Sorry, uh, I, I'm also curious as to the other five points. I'll, I'll, I'll do those. Me at the too. End. Me we'll too. we'll tell you at the end. Um, first question was what's the effect on national income. Uh, the second question was making presents, of which the top tip in my Festive Fivers competition on the website is a big bloom box. Kids love big things, so get them a really really big box, fill it with blooms, wrap it. Kids always prefer the wrapping to the present anyway, it costs about two pounds. You give them it, they see a huge box, they jump in it, they pop the blooms, they absolutely love it, and it costs about two quid. And that is the winner of our festive fibers competition. So how would the bloom box affect your theory? <laughs> and the third question, additional waste after Christmas, another big idea that we talk about is the DIY token. If you want to buy a plasma tally for your kids, you know it'll be cheaper in January. So give them a DIY give them a token that says um, I'm going to wait, a delay token. You give them that, you buy them a little extra present with the amount of money that you would save, then you've given them three things. One, a plasma television, two, an extra present, and three, a good lesson in money sense. So what do you think about additional purchases in January? How does, if people wait, how does that affect value? Well, so 
Uh, first of all, the gift card move has really done that. It's shifted purchasing over to January. So, uh, and I think that, that that's a real growing trend. We see a lot of purchases taking place then. There are, I think, sales after Christmas, but at the same time, the fact that there's a lot of buying power that, that sort of meets the market after January, or after December, rather, uh, means that if you think about retailers' incentives, it's not so clear they want to discount as much as they used to, because there's all this hot money walking around in the form of gift cards. So I, I and I, you know, I was talking to a retailer the other day who claimed that uh, you know, the week before Christmas, they actually keep their prices very low, even though people are very inelastic in their demand because the retailers are eager to move stuff out the door. I, I really, as with every time I talk to a business person, I couldn't make any sense of the argument <coughs> at all. But it does suggest that the prices aren't falling as much as we might have thought. They're already low, apparently, before Christmas. But, but still, I take the point from a personal finance perspective. It, it's quite desirable to get that gift card if you're really going to go out and spend it immediately after Christmas when prices might be lower. Now, on the effects on, on the national economy and growth, that's really interesting. So the way we usually talk about growth and the way we usually talk about spending being good, we're just talking about revenue. You know, we're forgetting about the consumer surplus. So if people somehow misconstrued me to be saying don't buy presents at all, of course, growth would decline. The economy would shrink. But if people did heed my advice and spent the same amount of money that they're currently spending, there'd be no measured growth, but there'd be more consumer surplus, more unmeasured growth. So in some ways, there's, there's no good news for usual, the growth in the way we usually measure it in anything I'm doing. <laughs> at best, you know, at worst, there'd be a reduction in sort of measured growth, but at best, there'd be no measured growth, but growth in sort of satisfaction. So I'm, I'm, but I'm a little bit on a hobby horse, though, about the distinction between what's good for the economy and what's good for sellers, so, you know, as, as I talked about. Now, the issue of presence we make, so this is one I think it sort of depends. If, you know, if I spend three months knitting you a sweater, and I didn't frankly enjoy that. There is know, no need, if you were wondering. <laughs> I mean, my time is valuable, I think, and so if I didn't enjoy that, this did have cost. So it better have some big benefits, or else this seems like a sort of a strange thing to spend time doing. On the other hand, if I really enjoyed doing it, my mother used to really, really enjoy knitting. And uh, I think in part because she was giving the things to her family, but in part she just really enjoyed knitting. I don't think it was that costly to her to give, give me those sweaters, and I enjoyed getting them, even though they didn't fit that well. So, um, you know, I think that's fine, but, but the, the issue, though, from the standpoint of this notion is if it's... If it's somehow a labor of love or an activity you don't mind doing, then it's not very costly. Then it doesn't have a high burden of satisfaction to me. But if it really is costly, I mean, <coughs> time is valuable. So I'm not so sure that, it, that, it, that it's a, a solution. I mean, if you're liquidity constrained, then maybe it's a way for you to meet your obligation, and maybe a nice way. But again, your time does have value. I think we'll do the last round of questions now. Hold on. Put hands up if you want a question. This is your last chance. Okay, we're going to, we'll do, buzz through the three at the back, and then we'll come to the front and see how far we get. So, but we'll go, I'll let you ask them, why don't we do quick fire? Let's go for quick fire, but yep, make yep, your yep. questions quick too. So first one, yep. Hello, um, I'm Carl, I'm a postgraduate from the University of Chicago. Um, I was wondering, have you looked at all at how much time people invest in shopping for gifts, time wasted on the computer at work, on Amazon, etc. <laughs> versus their marginal product of labor if they were actually getting work done? Um, and if so, what are your thoughts on that, whether or not you have <coughs> numbers? Uh, let's do that one quickly. Okay, so I have looked at the American Time Use Survey. I can tell you, for example, that if you look at the, the time use spikes in December, I can tell you that 80% of the additional time spent is spent by women. Uh, I don't know if that's surprising. And frankly, I don't know whether shopping is enjoyable. I suspect for many it's onerous, in which case we should think about this as a cost. I don't know about... Uh, about, about marginal product of labor, and I also don't know whether it's more efficient to buy more stuff all at once. I do know that when you have to buy a lot of stuff at once, though, a lot of the stuff will turn out not to be wanted. So that's, that's all I know. I'm the gentleman at the back. Hi, my name is Chad, an interloper with no university affiliation. Um, who's university been of life, we'll call you. <laughs> who's been blessed to receive a number of gift cards to uh, stores or institutions, which I've never set foot into and probably never will. Uh, it's been recommended several times by yourself in the audience as a value-preserving gift, although I've seen them sold at a 20% discount on eBay. I know that doesn't include the gift cards that are used and not sold, but I'm just wondering if you might comment on whether they also destroy almost as much value as gifts. Yeah, so I mean, th they do still impose some requirement on the giver. The giver has to give you something, for, uh, give you a card for a store you would actually patronize. And apparently they can miss the mark on that one too. I mean, the trading below par though, that's really a, that's a transfer again, not value destruction. It is symptomatic of a problem, but it's a sort of a different kind of a problem. 
this gentleman here. Hi, I'm Ravi doing an MSc in economics. Um, just wondering again, tackling the same question, uh, based on your solution, one of the solutions that you propose is charity giving. And even though you s mention it, you don't really go into details about the fact that there is plenty of charities out there with 40% overhead cost. So that would imply even a bigger waste than the initial one. And then my second concern is with your setup, the way you actually move into your final conclusion as you jump between classical economic theory when you, when you <coughs> talk about efficiency and whenever a problem arises like the problem where is, is this voluntary at all, you, you, use, you jump into a behavioral economic sort of like... You get one. Which do you one. want? First or the second? The first. Okay. Charities. Right. You so, got off the, the yeah, yeah, yeah. So, economic I, mean, I, I agree. It is important to, to evaluate which charities. So, for example, one of the, uh, one of the organizations I, I, I point to in the book is in the U.S. called Charity Navigator. Charity Navigator is essentially a, a rater of efficiency of charities. And so the recipient of the good card can go look at Charity Navigator and, and find a charity that gets, you know, four stars on their rating system for having low overheads. I agree. It has to be a carefully chosen charity. Fortunately, there are, you know, institutions that allow you know, information to be gathered about about those. Uh, the lady there. Uh, yes, I was, um, I thought it was interesting that you framed it as, sorry, Katie, I'm studying social anthropology. Um, you framed it as sort of things we waste. We don't want to waste things um, <coughs> rather than efficiency. Um, so I wondered how the amount that we waste on gift giving, this 13 billion that you're talking about, compares to how much we waste per year on other things, such as food that we purchase but don't eat and throw away because it goes bad, or things like clothing or shoes that we buy or don't use, or in recent years, the money that we invest in financial markets that sort of evaporates because of the, the housing bubble. Um, if you maybe could comment on that. I'd, I'll just interrupt on that very quickly to say that the, it's estimated the average spend in the UK on Christmas is £600. It's estimated that the average amount we waste in throwing away food that's gone past, past its date and can no longer be used is £600. Over to you. Um, <laughs> I think you said it well. Because uh, I don't know, but I know I know. Th th those are the general stats. Did you, have you studied that one efficiency-wise? I, I have never studied that one. Of course, there is a precautionary demand for food. Okay, let's just do the final questions. I'll say to the lady at the back, uh, my article on it is both on my blog and my website, and it's also on the Times website. If you look up ban Christmas presents, it should come up on Google. Um, where have we got? This gentleman here. Yes. Hi, I'm Peter. I'm visiting. I just want to, you know, that, that Christmas seems hardwired into our culture because the kids at school now are already putting up festive things. And I just wonder, you know, I mean, how are you going to make any impact on that culture, you know? Um, um, how, how do you get across that? It's a, really a, what I think is a confidence trick. I mean, I, I sense a lot of interest in, uh, in charity among children. I sense a lot of uh, a sense among many people, children and adults alike, that spending is excessive. Of course, that's not my point. My point is that satisfaction is insufficient. But I think that resonates with the people who simply believe that the spending is excessive. So, you know, I'm optimistic that change is possible just from the fact that gift cards have been adopted. I mean, it's a small step, but in some sense, it's a big step. <coughs> I actually would say we have a massive change going on here. Um, we uh, certainly, we did a survey on this on, on the website, we had 15,000 people vote of it, 75% of, of people said they would like to ban presents for everybody except children and spouses. And that was 75% and some people went much further. Of course this is on my website which is money saving expert, you know, you can understand there's a certain, we have a certain user base going that way and this was on a blog on the back. But the feedback from what I'd written was almost universally in favour that we've gone too far on obligational gift giving. One of those points for the lady back there about mine is gift inflation which I have a real problem with that you, we now have people, whether it's birthdays or Christmas, where children boast in schools and it puts a lot of pressure on poorer families who cannot afford such gifts. And gift inflation is a real issue for me going forward and we need to st stop that. You know, there are some blessings from the recession and the credit crunch and I think this may just be one of them. We'll have one more question and then we'll wrap up. The gentleman there. Hi, I'm a postgraduate of Decision Sciences. My question is, for the last 25 years, every single gift that I've got had its price tag scratched out, and very emphatically. Why do people do that? <laughs> well, apparently they don't want you to know how much they paid. <laughs> That's not really a deep answer, of course. Uh, you know, the, I don't really know the answer, but I have thought a little bit about this. Uh, it's not in the book, but, you know, I, I wonder if, you know, it, 
Although gift cards are enormously popular, I wonder if they would be even more popular if it were possible to disguise how much you had spent. So I had this, this wacky idea for random gift cards, right? So, you know, you'd get a gift card, you'd scratch it off and find out how much it's worth. And of course, it's impossible to do the inference. Pro I mean, maybe there's some fancy way to, to be Bayesian about it. But I mean, you wouldn't know how much they paid for it. And maybe that would be an attractive, uh, an attractive thing. It's just that how do you audit it, you know? So if I actually spend 100 and you only get 35, I mean, I don't know. So, but, but honestly, I thought about this. I know there is this interest in disguising what's spent. And in some ways, you know, the, the obstacle to, to, to more transparent giving is a desire not to communicate how much I spent. But having said that, the great adoption of gift cards suggests that this isn't a huge obstacle. People seem to be, you know, willing to do this, but I, I agree with you. Until next Tuesday, buy two 15 pound gift cards at Tesco, you get the second one half price, so you get iTunes gift cards, these are, so you can get 30 pounds of iTunes gift cards for 22 pound 50, so therefore leave the price on, they'll think you've spent more, and we're creating value. Uh, and with that, uh, I'd like to, first of all, we can have a round of applause for the professor, who will be signing books outside.